You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Good morning, everybody. Let's stand for the reading of Esther 2, verses 1 through 8. After these things, when the anger of the king, Ahasuerus, had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all of the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young ladies who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemiah, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem uh, to the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. I have uh, not met you yet. My name is Andrew, and I I didn't do this uh, first service at the right spot, so I'm going to do this now. If we were turning on a TV show, um, and it was Esther, at the upper corner where it gives the rating, as far as like, is, is this like kid show? Is this TVMA? This is TVMA. Um, And and so there's a lot of themes within the book of Esther that probably should make us blush a little bit. And if they don't, we'll talk about that later. Um, But there's a lot happening here. And so I just, I just want to jump in, in verse 1 of chapter 2. We're going to make our way through all of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to get one out or follow along on your, your phone or your iPad. There's Bibles right in front of you. You're welcome to grab those. Esther chapter 2 says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we walked through Esther chapter 1, where we were introduced uh, to King Ahasuerus, the the pun on his name in Hebrew, King Hedig. And King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, 
threw a party for 180 days. That wasn't enough, so he added seven more for those within the citadel, and, and they, they just went for it. He was lavishing his people with all of his goods because he was trying to build a military campaign because he wanted to take down the Greeks. It's something that his father was never able to do, and he wanted to prove that he could do it. And so he was gaining the favor of all his people, saying, this is the kind of kingdom that you will continue to enjoy if you fight with me. So 187 days, they're having this party, and we're told that when the king was merry with wine, when he was a little uh, tipsy, he was inebriated, uh, he asked for his wife, the queen, to come forward and just her crown. She says no. Hashwares, angry in this moment, uh, gathers together his council. They make a decree that she should be uh, no longer able to stand in the presence of Hashwares and that a new queen uh, is, is going to be needed because she's no longer queen. And this decree goes out to all the people in all the places. And so then we catch up in chapter 2 right here. And if we're just reading along, if you're just kind of going through, you think no time has passed. But actually, by the time we get to to chapter 2, some estimate that maybe uh, four years have passed by. And in this time, a lot of things have taken place. The very war that Ahasuerus was preparing for with the Greeks has already come and gone, and it didn't go well for him. He had superior manpower. He had one of the uh, largest armies in all of the world, the greatest territory by all accounts. He should have won. His men were were fierce, and they were known for their brutality. They carried very lightweight armor. They had uh, hand-to-hand combat skills where they would just rip through the other side. But part of that was aided by the fact that there were so many archers that it was said that when the archers let go of their arrows, the, the very sky was darkened by the number of arrows that would come across the way. And so they would stand there, they'd launch their arrows into the enemy, and then as those came down, they would immediately just send hordes of their people to go and finish whoever had survived that. And this tactic worked over and over and over again. The problem was, is when they met the Greeks, Greeks had superior armor, and they they had superior tactics, honestly. The Greek hoplites, as they were known, they carried what was a large shield and a large spear. And when they would gather together, they would connect shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and they would have someone with the shield over their head so that when those arrows were raining down, they had protection on all sides. And if you made your way into that uh, shape they called the phalanx, if you came close enough, well, you were going to receive the sharp end of a very long spear. And so the Greeks, knowing that they didn't have the numbers of the Persian army, they fought smart. And actually, one of the most legendary battles was the Battle of Thermopylae, a small, narrow passageway that the Greeks guarded that would lead into the rest of Greece. And so the Persian army shows up with all their might, thinking, we have got this. And then they met the warriors that were standing their ground. And it looked like Greece was going to fend them off right there and then. But what would actually happen is that one of their own would betray them. And they would show one of the Persian uh, captains just an entryway around the back through this pass that would eventually lead to the Persians defeating the Greeks in this moment. 
Now, the, the Greeks would do their best. They would send their Spartans, the 300 fame. They would stand their ground, holding them off as long as they could. They were utterly annihilated, but they gave enough time for other warriors to run back and prepare the rest of Greece. Now, you're, you're hearing this, and you're like, but wait, you said Persia lost, and they defeated the Greeks in this battle. They defeated the Greeks. And it might have seemed like they had it, but unbeknownst to them, this was actually the turning point of the war. Because all of Greece would rise up. They would experience damage. They would experience pain. They would experience loss. But ultimately, they would defeat Persia and send Xerxes and his army back to his kingdom, dejected and defeated and full of despair. This king who treated himself as though he was God and pronounced himself as though he was over all suffered defeat. This king who had partied for 187 days telling his kingdom just how great things would be underneath him now is experiencing deep and devastating loss. And this is where we find Xerxes, Ahasuerus, in chapter 2, sitting with his defeat Sitting with his despair. Now, when you experience a painful failure, what usually is going through your mind? Do you reflect back on all the victories you've had in your life and, and how awesome you are? Or do you just continue that spiral down of all the things that you have done wrong? And so in this moment, this king who is experiencing despair and defeat, what is he doing? After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. He remembered that he had no queen. Because in a fit of anger, he had banished her from his presence. He had made a decree that she could never enter again into his presence. And when we are feeling so defeated, when we are feeling at our worst, uh, how do we deal with this? Well, a lot of us uh, choose the poison of distraction. Right? Neil Postman, in his very prophetic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he wrote, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. As some psychiatrists once put it, we all build castles in the air. The problems come when we try to live in them. So here we have a sad and defeated king. And a sad and defeated king is not nearly as fun to be around as one throwing lavish parties. And so those around the king, they come up with a plan, right? They look at King Ahasuerus and they're like, man, it is time to man up to learn from your failures and you're going to become a better man by dealing with the depths of your despair and facing it head on, right? No, that's not what they do. They take a, a, an easier path. They hatch a plan. What the king needs is a little distraction. The king needs a new wife. And so how, how can we do this? Verse 2, we pick back up. And what does it say? It says, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And surprisingly, this pleased the king, right? And he did so. This plan, when we hear it, it's like this affront. We feel like this is so Archaic. It is so out of touch with our day and age. 
Because we couldn't even imagine watching some king try and and sift through 25 contestants as they tried to woo him so that he would give them the rose at the end of the season, right? We would never, we would never partake in something like that. See, it's funny because we we think we're so far removed and then when we stop, we're like, oh, we're, we're still there, aren't we? And some of you right now, you're like, I would never tell you that I watched that show, right? But you're like, oh, it's on? He chose who? You see, his counselors come around him, and and what do they do? They give counsel uh, to the age-old problem when we have a problem. Matt Gilbert says it like this. He says, when we seek pleasure for the wrong reasons and in the wrong places, it will always evade us. When we seek pleasure in Christ, we will always find it. Ahasuerus is, is defeated. He's, he's desperate. But the king does not wish to seek the true king. He doesn't wish to face his failures. And so are we surprised that the king would like this plan? That countless women will be brought to him. Beautiful young women from throughout his kingdom. Of course, he's going to say yes to this plan. But the cruelty and the brutality of this plan, that's a harder one for us to grasp. See, these women would be brought to the king's uh, house for his harem, for his concubines. They weren't given a choice in this matter. If the king wanted them to come, they were to come. Their families weren't given a choice in this matter. If the king wanted them, they had to give them his daughter. They would be taken, prepared for the king, paraded before him. He would be given them for a night. And then if they weren't chosen, they would be sent back to the the king's house for all of his women where they would stay for the rest of their lives. They would not be given an option to remarry or to have a family because anyone who spent the night with the king, who slept with the king, could not be had by another man. So they would live this existence, but they wouldn't really live a life. And so we hear this and all the scandal that comes with it, but actually the most scandalous verse, if you were a good Jewish man or woman hearing this account for the first time, the most scandalous verse is the verse that comes next. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. This Mordecai, who we are introduced to, is a Jewish man. He's identified as a Jewish man, a child of the promise. And he's living in Susa. He's living in the citadel. Now, Susa, there was the the capital, the the city of Susa, and then within there, there was the citadel. This is where all the governance would take place, and we're told that Mordecai had a role where he was present in the citadel, that he was working in the government for the king. But what would be so scandalous is that Mordecai, 
this name that after the account of Esther would become a, a regular name that Jewish men and women would name their children in honor of this Mordecai. But before this, Mordecai would have been uh, mortifying all who heard that name. Because the name Mordecai comes from the chief Babylonian god, Marduk. And the name itself means man or worshiper of Marduk. So you have someone who is identifying as, as a Jew, a child of Yahweh, the true and only God, the I am. And he is identifying as a worshiper or a man of Marduk. Now, we see precedent of this in that Daniel and his compatriots were given Babylonian names when they went there, and so they kind of had two names, but we're only given one name here, Mordecai, for this man. We're told of his family line, that he uh, was of the tribe of Benjamin, a son of Kish, that his ancestors had been taken away in the first exile in 597 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar began to take the best and the brightest with him until he would eventually take everyone in 586 B.C. But when we hear those names, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, there's, there's some familiarity to those. And if you have that ring, then maybe you've been reading along with us in our daily reading plan, and you remember back when we were reading through Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, that this is the lineage of Saul, the first human king of Israel. That he was a son of Kish, and he was a Benjamite. Now, what is happening here is the author is drawing our attention to this lineage. He's making a link here so that we know that what is to come, this matters, So this little piece of information, you're just going to park it because next week it's going to make a lot more sense as to why they gave us this little tidbit. Because biblical rivalries, let me just say, they die hard. And we're going to see that they last a long time. And so we're told that he's a son of Kish. He goes back to the tribe of Benjamin. But that's not all we learn of him. There's more to Mordecai. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So now we are introduced to the book's namesake, Esther. This girl with two names. She's first introduced to us as Hadassah, her Hebrew name, her Jewish name. Hadassah, a name that means a myrtle. It's also a, a play on words, much like King Ahasuerus is a play on words for King Headache. Uh, Hadassah also has this play on words for, for hidden, which we'll see throughout the book of Esther. There is a, a hiddenness. We are given information that the people who are living in this moment don't have. We see kind of the broader scope while things are yet to be revealed to those who are actually living it out. And we will see that the thing that is revealed is the true identity of just who Esther is. But she also has her uh, Persian name, Esther. Esther, which can mean star or also has roots in Ishtar, the the god of love and war. So she too has her, her Persian name. And the other information that we're given about Esther is that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. 
Again, we've talked about this before. When attributes are are drawn out or spoken of in biblical accounts, they're drawing our attention to something that's important. And so they're saying uh, Esther was exceptionally beautiful. The last time we saw someone described in such a way was Vashti for her beautiful. She was the beloved set apart one for the king. And now we hear Esther as, as a woman of exceptional beauty. And what we're going to discover is not only does she uh, have an outward beauty, but there is an inner strength and an inner beauty that will continue to be revealed as she's tested throughout these accounts. But the question that we come back to is why are Esther and Mordecai, two Jews, still living in the midst of the Persian Empire? And the reason I ask that question is because a previous Persian king, Cyrus, had given everyone permission who was Jewish to go back to the land, to go back to Jerusalem and help to rebuild the temple. He'd given everyone a free pass. If God's calling you to go back, you go on back. You can do that. We read of this in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, we're not given the reason why they are still here. We, we, We don't know. We don't get that information. Perhaps it was because uh, some of their ancestors had decided that they were rising in the ranks to work for the king and the opportunity seemed too great to go back to a, a place of uncertainty that had to be rebuilt. Maybe it was the loss of family and, and Mordecai and Esther were thinking, we, we don't have the means or the ability to get back there. We, we don't know. All we know is that they are here for such a time as this. And Esther, this girl with two names, is is going to have to decide throughout this account who she really is. So verse 8 continues, and it says, When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken in the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women, and the young woman pleased the young woman pleased him and won his favor and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem so we shouldn't really be surprised based on what we knew of Esther that she's described as exceptionally beautiful that of course the king and those searching on behalf of the king are going to see her and want her to be a part of this uh, competition for who would be the next queen. But we're told that she, Esther, was taken into the king's palace and she was placed in the custody of Haggai who was the eunuch, the one who oversaw all the, the harem and the comp concubines and the wives of the king. Now, it was strategic that eunuchs were often placed in charge of uh, the the women of the palace so that there would be no competition or no intrigue. But what's interesting here is, as so often the author of Esther continues to do, there's an element of humor. Because two things that are drawn out here. That we're told from the very beginning that Esther pleased Haggai and won his favor. The humor here is that 
Esther is, is so beautiful, so exceptional that even a eunuch is taking notice of her and, and she is finding favor. But this is the second thing, favor, this word chesed in the Hebrew. It means steadfast, loyal love. This is the way God describes his love, that he is steadfast, that he is merciful. And so again, even though God is not mentioned throughout this entire account, we see whispers of him throughout that Esther is placed in this horrific situation. And yet even in this moment, she is receiving favor. So God is is moving and up to something that we should be paying attention. Verse 10. Actually, let let me jump back there really quick. Because Haggai, not only did he show her favor, but we see that he provides for her. Uh, cosmetics, best portion of the food, he's, he's caring for her. We have, we have no commentary. Let me just tell you this. We have no commentary uh, from the author or, or from, from history as to, to whether or not Esther pushed back in any way, shape, or form. In the account of Daniel, we see when Daniel's brought food from the king that he was resolved not to eat uh, things that would defile him. With Esther, we see none of that. We see Esther just kind of going along and and making some, what we would say, some compromises along the way that seem questionable. Is she really just hiding who she is? Is she not trying to say, you know, actually, I'm a a daughter of the king uh, and I need to follow the Torah. I need to follow the law and there's certain ways in which I'm supposed to eat. We don't see any of that with Esther. There's just a quietness in this account. There's information that we get to see and then there's information that we wish we could see, but there's a lot that we just don't have. So verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So here in verse 10, we we see this, and we're going to hear it repeated again, that Mordecai, before Esther had uh, been taken, and and let's be clear, the, the language was that she was taken into this. It wasn't that she was given into this. She was taken into this. And we don't know if Mordecai tried to fight this. We don't know if Esther tried to fight this, but she was taken into this, uh, this moment where she was being sent through the paces to become queen. But in the midst of this, Mordecai had made it clear to her, you do not tell anyone. You do not tell anyone who you are. Okay, a couple things from this that make it clear. Mordecai understood the weightiness of being Jewish. We don't know his motives. We don't know why he wanted her to keep this hidden. We can, we can read and, and we have kind of the, the future that he didn't know. We could say, well, it was probably a smart decision for him to do that because of who was coming next and all these different things. But, but we don't know in that moment what was driving him to say, hey, just, just downplay that. Don't let anyone know who you really are. And when we look in, in biblical times, it's, it's very rare. I mean, we don't see this kind of a thing that anyone would ever encourage us. Hey, if you're a follower of Jesus today, can you just keep that down and not tell anybody? I mean, we do a good job of that at times, don't we? But I don't think we're ever told to do that. And so in this moment, it's interesting that he is so downplaying this. But we also read that every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Because of his position, because he was, had access to the citadel, he could walk by and he could glean information. 
And the way in which this is written, it doesn't seem as though Mordecai was just interested in, in Esther because, man, if she becomes queen, that's going to be great for me. This seems like there's a genuine care that he was concerned for her. He had taken her in, this orphan, as, as his own daughter. Now, when we, we talk around this, that he adopted her. That's what we read earlier in this passage, that he takes her in, and they're actually cousins. And many assume that Esther was probably in her late teens, late upper teens, and Mordecai was probably in his, his 30s, somewhere in there, and he was treating her as his daughter. So there's still this care, this paternal care that he is showing for her. Verse 12, now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. And so now we're coming into uh, this moment where these women that are being put forward before the king, they're being prepared. Twelve months of preparation, right? There are so many jokes loaded in here, and just... <laughs> It's too easy, too easy. 12 months of prep, and, and anyway, but 12 months, for six months, there, and, and the way that this, this grooming and this preparation would go, I mean, they would bathe and they would sit in, in vats of perfumed oil, just allowing that to absorb into their skin uh, so that their skin would be supple, but also that they would smell fragrant. I mean, there's all these preparations that were going into this, what they ate, what they couldn't eat, all these different things they had to go through the paces. And then by the time that they were called to go in and have their night with the king, they were allowed to bring in whatever they wanted. And for some, that might mean bringing in a musical instrument uh, because they would play the king to sleep or whatever tools they needed, they would bring in. And there's, there's a lot of speculation as to what that would look like, what, why they would do that. All they knew is they had one night with the king. That was it. And, and, and if that night ended and he never called on them again, and he never summoned them by name again, then they would just stay in the house in the harem uh, forever. I mean, again, there's, there's a lot riding on this. And I, and I have to imagine that some of these women were going forward in the midst of this in complete protest, but also trying to figure out what's the better life to actually become the queen or, or to be able just to, to kind of park my life and not have to deal with him. And, and the, the conflict that is there and the horror of this moment, again, we read the story and we move past it quick. But this was devastating. Daughters taken from families that would never be seen again by their families. And why? Because the king was, was in need of entertainment. The king needed to distract himself from the despair that he was feeling and the consequences of his own actions of banishing his queen. Months of preparation go in. Verse 15. These women are going in. Now we come to Esther's turn. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. 
So now it's Esther's turn. She can bring in whatever she wants. She seeks Haggai and says, whatever you think I should bring, that's what I'm going to do. And she continued to win favor with everyone she encountered. Now again, we, we talk around seeing the unseen, the movement of God in these moments. There are so many things that happen in the, the account of Esther that we could say just what an incredible, lucky coincidence. All these things playing out, but what we see is God moving in the midst of this, orchestrating things far beyond what Esther could have comprehended here, far beyond what Mordecai could have comprehended here, far beyond what King Ahasuerus could have thought was happening in and around him. God was moving. Verse 16, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. I love how one author states this. He says, the girl who was adopted became the girl who was abducted, who then became the girl who advanced in the harem ultimately to be adorned with a crown and announced as queen and a feast given just for her. Now, there's always this temptation when we read the story of Esther, that this reads like this incredible fairy tale of this orphan girl who now rises in the ranks to become queen. But we have to remember who she is. She is not Persian. She's an exile in a foreign land in a, with a foreign king who worships a foreign god, who's brutal, sadistic, one who would continually seek out the pleasures of other women throughout his life. This wasn't a fairy tale by any stretch of the imagination. But in this moment, the king is happy and the king is pleased. And so he throws a feast in Esther's name and he uh, gives a break on taxes so that everyone is now happy in this moment. And Esther's name, Queen. Now, we, we aren't given any more information than that she, was, uh, she received grace and favor from the king. We, we don't know how she earned that. We, we don't need to spend time there figuring that out. There's a lot of questions that come with that of an unmarried Jewish girl spending the night with a pagan king ultimately become unequally yoked with a Gentile ruler. The Torah would have a lot of things to say about that. And yet here God is moving in the midst of these compromises that leave us with questions that we don't have answers for. There's some passages in here that we would just like to skip over because they're hard to explain. There's a lot in here that I'd just like to like, let's just, let's, next week's going to be great. Let's just skip forward. But God is moving in the midst of this. And now Esther is queen. So we see the rise of Esther, but what of Mordecai? We get this add-on in this story that's going to set things up for where we're going next week. Verse 19 is where we pick up. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's 
gate. Remember, he has access to the citadel, and so he just so happens to be sitting at the king's gate in this moment, okay? Anytime you hear me say, he just so happens, you know I'm being sarcastic, all right? Because God in his providence is orchestrating things that seem like happy, fortuitous accidents, and yet he's doing something. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So we see still there's this relationship intact between the two of them. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Now, this is an interesting moment because Mordecai hears of this plot against the king's life, and let's just be honest and real clear in history, there was a lot of plots against this particular king's life. Xerxes was not well-liked. He made enemies everywhere he went. He made enemies with his uh, court officials because he was often pursuing their wives and, and often he was victorious in that pursuit. And so he did not have a lot of friends in that nature. That's why in, in, in 465 BC, uh, BC, he was eventually assassinated in his own bedroom because one of his officials was finally fed up with King Xerxes. So a plot against his life, not unheard of, but Mordecai happens to be there. Now, again, we're given no information as to the thought process of Mordecai here, but it is fascinating that now Esther is queen, and this brutal king is her husband, and here's a chance, if he just lets this plot go, maybe that guy dies. But what does he do? He does the right thing even when it's the hard thing, and he tells Esther, and Esther takes that news to her now husband, the king, and she warns him. Verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. She goes to the king, says, Mordecai warned me against a plot against you. They investigate it. They find it to be true. And in here it tells us that they were hanged on the gallows. Hanged on the gallows. And this translation is really trying to translate uh, words that we, we just want to get at a meaning here. But really, uh, in the Persian Empire, there was no hanging in the gallows. If someone was going to be hung on anything, it meant that they were impaled upon a post. Okay, that was their preferred measure of, of killing somebody or making a statement, that they would have a large post and they would either impale the body directly on it or they would kill the person and place their head directly on it. I mean, that sounds like a party, doesn't it? And why would they do that? Because they wanted to leave that person up as an example to anybody who would have similar thoughts. Oh, you want to take on the king? Here's your future. This is what you are going to look like if you continue down this path. So here in this moment, these two guys that were plotting to assassinate the king, they are impaled upon poles. And this information is recorded in the Chronicles of the King. This is a record that is to just keep all that transpires in the life of a king. And this one little line that seems seemingly insignificant will have great significance later on in our story. So as we look at this account, beginning in chapter 2 of where we started, we began with a defeated and despondent king. 
We were introduced to two Jews who are hiding their identity in Susa, and there was an empire-wide quest for a new queen. And as we come to a close of this chapter, we end with an execution, a good deed, a new queen, and a grateful king. And next week, we will see this plot thicken even further as we're introduced to the true villain of this story. But for now, we look at this and we go, okay, what, where, what do we pull from this? What do we pull from the, the, the word of God that is alive and active and, and moving? What, what do we see in the midst of this? And so I want to grab hold of three things for us to sit with and to sift through. And the first one is this. And we're going to use King Ahasuerus as our example, really, of what not to do. We need to deal with our pain, not distract ourselves. We need to deal with our pain and not distract ourselves. When King Ahasuerus was feeling the sting of defeat, when he was feeling his past decisions, instead of dealing with it, instead of facing it, instead of recognizing he could not overcome this on his own, what did he do? He, he allowed others to distract him. And this not only caused more pain for himself, but for others as well. You might be here this morning. And you may feel like you're, you're sitting here and your mind is spinning a million other places right now because you feel completely out of control. Or maybe you feel, feel less than, or, or maybe you've had, you've had a bad week and you feel like, man, that's on me. I did some things I am not proud of this week. You feel uh, regret. You feel shame. The question is, when we feel those things, what do we do with them? I know, I know what a lot of us do. We run a distraction. We numb out in ways that, that, that pull our attention away from what really aches and what really hurts. We'll just watch nine seasons of this show and that'll make me feel better. Right? It's just a drink. It's just a drink. It just helps me. It just clears my mind at the end of the day. That's, that's all. Or maybe you find yourself just kind of scrolling endlessly and posting endlessly because those likes, they matter to you because you need some form of like affirmation in your life. Or maybe some of you enjoy retail therapy. Right? Life's not going so good, but there's a sale somewhere. And that will be there. And thanks to Amazon, we have a sale in our, in our homes every day. And we're like, I didn't even know I needed that, but that is fantastic. He just shows up at my house. I feel better already. Some of us, when we're feeling this, we just withdraw. Our texts become slower back to our friends, if at all. And we just think, if I just, if I just bunker down, I'll be better. And how many of us, when we isolate ourselves, are at our clearest in thinking? Maybe it's eating. Just distract myself with good food. You know what? I earned this gallon of ice cream today. Right? And we laugh because there's times we're like, yeah, no, I know exactly what I'm doing, but I'm doing it anyway. Cookie dough ice cream makes all the pain go away. Unless you're lactose intolerant. But sometimes you fight through it. You know what I'm saying? 
Some of, some of us, we, we hide in our kids. We can't deal with our problems, but we can sure fix our kids' problems. So if we just focus on them, Some of us just jumped like, I just, I need something. I need a fix. So pornography seems to be, oh, I can do that. But that's not, it's not dealing with anything. That's, that's trying to numb it. That's trying to distract ourselves. What do we do with the stuff that doesn't seem to go away? We don't distract. We, we divulge it. We bring it to God. We bring it to the one who says, come to me, all you who are weak and weary, which is every one of us in this room, and he, he can give us rest, true rest. See, earlier we read this quote. It says, when we seek pleasure for the wrong reasons and in the wrong places, it will always evade us. When we seek pleasure in Christ, we will always find it. We could switch out that word pleasure, and we could say, when we seek soothing for the wrong reasons in the wrong places, it will always evade us. But when we seek soothing in Christ, we will always find it because he is a healing balm to our souls. So deal with your pain. Bring it to Christ. Second thing in this that I, I wrestled with is that we need to understand who we are and not hide it. Understand who we are and not hide it. For unknown reasons. I read, I read a lot of different things. We were trying to, why, why did they hide? Why did Mordecai and Esther conceal who they, they were? And I, I could give answers that would make us feel like, oh, that, that feels happy. But they concealed who they were. And what do we see in this? That even in their concealing, God uses that He's going to use that for his glory, that in his graciousness, he meets them. And it's a reminder to me that their compromise isn't all that different from our own. Because there are times right now where it can feel really hard to be associated with Jesus. It can be really hard to take the narrow path. The, the, the path of destruction is wide, it's easy. It doesn't take much mental power. Like, just go for it. Just go along. But that narrow path can become really hard. And if you start walking that too frequently, people start looking at you a little differently. Like, what's wrong with you? And it can become easy for us to compromise. But are we afraid to be associated with Jesus? Should we ever be afraid to be associated with Jesus? the giver of life, the one who brings us freedom and hope. This reminded me of what Paul tells us in Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But from the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So that as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are in the household of faith. Paul's reminding us of what we have been invited into. 
that we have experienced the seed of life that Jesus has sown into our hearts. And so in the very same way, we should be sowing that seed wherever we go. Not growing weary of doing good, but continuing to do the the right thing, even when it's the hard thing, because the right thing is the God thing. So may we be unashamed in our association with Jesus. And then the third thing, our mistakes, they don't have the final word. God does. I find this so comforting. Karen Jobes, she states it like this. She says, even if we make the wrong decision, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Esther may have looked back on this episode of her life with shame and regret, or she may have looked back on it with a clear conscience knowing that she acted as wisely as she knew how at the time. In either case, every one of us has both kinds of episodes in our lives. Esther's story shows that we can entrust them to the Lord and move on. That in Christ, we are not stuck in our decisions. As I was reading through this and preparing for this, it's interesting to hear questions that come about Esther and her character. Some jump immediately to, she's this incredible example of courage, but then others kind of just brush past the fact that she spends the night with the king, and well, she was forced to, all these different questions come. And I see real hot takes on either side of that. But I also had this sense of if someone came in who had experienced what Esther had experienced, would we welcome her in, or would we condemn her because of her actions? What we see God doing throughout this story is helping Esther discover who she really is. What we see with Mordecai throughout this story is a man remembering more than just his people. He's remembering the promise of his creator. So whenever you're tempted to say your your past mistakes, your present mistakes, the mistakes that you're contemplating making right now, whenever you say, that's just who I am, That's just who I am. I I can't stop it. To that I say, no, that's, that's who you're choosing to be. Because the truth is, if you have bowed your knee to the true king in Jesus, the one who came to to set you apart, to call you by name, to offer you freedom and to offer you life, then who you really are is an heir of glory made in the image of God as an ambassador of Christ. So take the weight of past and present mistakes. Take that burden that weighs you down and bring them to the only one who can hold them and shape them and recreate them. That's what we see God doing throughout this account is taking a course of mistake after mistake, of compromise after compromise, and shaping it into this beautiful whole. In Isaiah 55, it speaks to the hope of the promise in the future. 
And we read these words in Isaiah 55, 12 through 13. It says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Do you remember what Hadassah means in Hebrew? means myrtle. And in the midst of a dry and barren land, this myrtle would bring fragrance and life. The prophetic symbolism here, as Joyce Baldwin states, is that the myrtle would replace the briars and the thorns of the desert, so depicting the Lord's forgiveness and acceptance of his people. Hadassah and her hiddenness is a myrtle of fragrant, evergreen promise that God is dropping in the midst of an empire of death. And the promise that is true for each and every one of us is that he takes the dry thorns of our lives and he can still bring forth evergreen, fragrant life. Because when we forget who we are, he doesn't. He continues to call it out of us. So wherever you find yourself this morning, in pain, looking for distraction. Perhaps you've forgotten who you are. Perhaps you know all too well just who you are. Then let us in these moments turn to the only source who can truly heal and make us whole. Let us come to Jesus. And let us live. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for your continued engagement with the complexity of humanity. The ways in which we push against you. uh, The ways in which we walk with you for seasons to forget you and others. And yet you are steadfast. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that if, if there's any in here who are just distracting themselves from their pain, Lord, that in these moments that you would convict and show a better way and also, Father, not only convict, but would you comfort showing that you can carry our pain, our regret, our shame, Let us not numb ourselves, but let us truly live in you. And Father, would you give us a a clear understanding of who we are in you? That in you we are your ambassadors wherever we go. That you are with us. And Jesus, we thank you that our mistakes don't have the final word, but you do. So we bring our sin. We bring our our hatred. We bring our anger. We bring those things in our hearts, Father, and we give them to you. 
repenting, asking that we would change our direction back towards you, seeking forgiveness that only comes from you. For this sin that dwells within us, it demands death. But you have paid that wage in full. And so, Father, in these moments, would we repent? Would we turn to you and find life? And would we allow you to be the one who defines who we are? Not our past mistakes, not our past decisions, but you who sets us free. So, Lord, I pray that you continue to move in this time as we reflect and we respond and worship to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we move into our response time, I just want to remind you of how we've crafted these services that we can be confronted by the word and then come before the Lord in response. That we have people available that if you need prayer, and when I say if you need prayer, it's not just uh, everyone look at the person going back for prayer because their life's imploding. That's, that's not what we mean by that. Because it, the truth is, is that all of us should be standing up to receive prayer and praying alongside one another. And maybe for you, walking in the back is too hard, but maybe you've got someone next to you that you can just pray with. I want to encourage you to do that. But as we spend time with worship music, whether you sing or just allow that to be sung over you, I, I pray that you would allow God to convict you, to expose those areas in your heart that you are just distracting yourself, that you are just numbing yourself, and you're finding no solution, but would you turn to the true solution in him and give him room to work in your heart this morning? Maybe there's places in your life that you feel that you are compromising that you're, you're shrinking back a little bit from what he would have for you or maybe you're given opportunities that you're not really stepping into as, as, as boldly as you need to and so allow God to speak to you there. And then finally, for any of you in here who feel like your mistake is too great for Jesus, I would like to introduce you to my king who can overcome anything. And at the table, we have the communion elements which remind us that with his body and with his blood, he gave everything. He paid our debt in full that in him we may have life. So over the course of this time, as you examine your heart and come before the Lord, when you're ready, feel free to partake of the communion elements. And again, people are in the back. I'll be in the back as well if anyone needs prayer. But let us just step into this time and allow God to do what he needs to do in us. So, Father, would you move? Would you search our hearts? Would you expose anything that is grievous within us? Would we turn that over to you and experience a newness, a newness that comes from being a new creation in you, a newness that is available to all who call upon your name as Lord and Savior. So God, would your spirit move and convict? Bring to mind things that maybe we don't want to deal with and we want to distract ourselves, but would you deal with them? Lord, move among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, it, 
I'm, I'm often embarrassed how surprised I am by your faithfulness. And yet you reveal yourself over and over and over. And so would you give us eyes to see what you are doing and how you're moving in our lives and in the lives of those around us? Would we become more and more aware of your goodness, more confident in your greatness? And as we step forward from here this week, Father, would we do so unashamed of the good news of who you are, holding tight to that truth and knowing that our story is defined by you and who you are. And so we praise you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close this morning, um, we'll have people down front. If, if you would just like to pray or just talk with anyone, um, I also want to encourage you to join tonight at 5 o'clock out at Western uh, Nevada Gateway Park in Penn Valley for Church Without a Building as we gather and bring, bring a picnic, enjoy time just worshiping and, and hearing the word um, and fellowshipping with our church and so many other churches that have gathered uh, for that time. also want to encourage you to sign up. I know it feels early, but Fall Festival is going to be here real fast and, and we need you. Um, and it is so much fun uh, to, to serve the community and all those who come through, but also just to serve alongside so many incredible people here. And so please sign up for that. Let us know you're coming. Uh, and you men, uh, make sure you sign up um, because I was about to say, hopefully we get to use those waivers throwing axes, but I really hope we don't get to use those waivers throwing axes. Um, that would be a bad deal, but let's see what happens. So come join us as we throw axes next Saturday. Looking forward to that, October 1st. Um, but as we step out from here, uh, I just want to take these words from Paul that we would not be ashamed of the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you have entrusted your life to the king, then he is with you and he is for you. May we never walk ashamed of that, but living fully and courageously with conviction within that. And when we feel the sting of defeat, would we not distract ourselves with lesser things, but would we go to the ultimate thing which is found in him? So this week, may you know his grace. And may you experience his peace. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.